0: Welcome market participants to our latest installment of Three Things in Credit. This is Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA, and this week, and every week, we identify three things in credit markets that caught our eye during the week that we think you should know about. Without further ado, let's get started. This week, our three things are, one, unemployment. It's Non-Farm Payrolls Friday, and we'll get beyond the headline number to what we call the quality of the labor market. Two, energy on the rebound. Energy has gotten caught up in the reflation trade and it may have some legs. And three, ESG management, not ESG scores. I'll explain the difference in KBRA's approach to evaluating ESG. So to kick things off, let's get to the jobs report. So non-farm payrolls are out, and the headline number, plus 49,000, has thrown a bit of cold water on the optimism that was building over the course of the week. Over the week, the estimate had risen to 105,000 from 50,000 on the back of better forward indicators, including claims. This, of course, is an improvement over December's bleak report, which showed the first contraction since April. So yes, the tone around the labor market has turned positive of late, in step with vaccinations getting underway, and hope springing eternal. Now, this past week, Jim Bullard at the St. Louis Fed said we are in the pandemic endgame and that the jobs market has rebounded more rapidly than expected and that the unemployment rate could decline to as low as 4.8% by the end of the year if those on temporary furlough are brought back. Now, for someone that forecast the rate could have hit 30% in the spring, it's quite a turnaround. What it's worth, the Bloomberg consensus forecast is for the unemployment rate to hit 5.5% by year-end 2021, uh, while the Fed consensus is 5.0%. By the way, the long-term average is 5.6%. If we look at the U6 measure, which picks up the discouraged and underemployed, that has come down nicely to 11.1%, well below the 17.2% peak in the GFC. So all feels relatively good, all things considered, right? Well, what if I were to tell you that jobless claims, improved as they were this week, are still running at two to three times higher than they do in a more normal growing economy? What if I were to point out that the 10 million jobs that remain lost since February will take four years to claw back based on the recently released newly upbeat forecast from the Congressional Budget Office? What if I were to tell you that the unemployment to population ratio is weaker than at any point in the GFC and on par with what the U.S. achieved back in the 1970s when women in the workforce was far lower. What if I were to tell you that the most of the forecasts I've seen assume very little scarring, where skills or desire atrophy among workers, and where all of this technological innovation that helped us all adapt so spectacularly to COVID we know will fundamentally change the value of some industries. Just as an example, think about what happens to certain segments of lodging and air travel when business travel, which has so meaningfully subsidized leisure travel, sees a secular decrease in activity. Remember, we are undergoing a secular shift from an economy rooted in manufacturing, commodities, and brick and mortar to one that is tech-enabled and virtual. So we wrote about this topic in some detail back in October. You can find it on our website, kbra.com, Type COVID-19's impact on jobs, and you'll find it. The point is, the quality of this labor market is weaker in our opinion than the headline numbers would otherwise suggest. For all of you corporate bond investors out there, you know when we look at earnings, we look beneath the headline number to figure out what the quality of those earnings are. Do the same thing when you think about the quality of the labor market. Look at the labor participation rate. Ideally, we want a high participation rate and a low unemployment rate. The participation rate in January, 61.4%, is the lowest since Gerald Ford was president back in 1976 and down from a peak of 67.3% as recently as 2000. We're seeing workers with less-in-demand skill sets, retiring baby boomers, and now parents taking care of children fall out of the labor force. Lower participation rate is a drag on the economy. Maybe that's why we didn't feel so good coming into 2020. Remember, U.S. GDP growth was in decline, heading towards sub-2%, even though the unemployment rate was 3.5%, a 50-year low. Yes, quality of the labor market. Pay attention to it. It matters. Okay, let's move on to our second thing, energy. Now we here at KBRA just presented a very well attended webinar on midstream energy and project finance. And if you were to do a word cloud on three hours of content, energy transition would shine through in big bold letters. That of course refers to where we all apparently are headed with regard to our energy sources, toward renewables and away from fossil fuels. ESG also a prominent theme in our conference is one of the clear driving forces behind the transition. Lately, there's been a lot of unsettling news in the traditional energy, i.e. oil and gas sector, much of it centered around standard bearer Exxon, which is trying to redefine where it fits in this energy transition. It is not an elegant exercise. There were reports this past week that it considered merging with Chevron in 2020, and it is currently being agitated by an activist calling for cost cuts and a shift in spending Toward cleaner fuels. Exxon shares hit an 18-year low in 2020, saw its market cap sink below America's largest generator of wind and solar power, Nextera, in October. The indignity and symbolism of it all. Amidst it all, the price of oil has risen to its highest level in a year, with WTI closing in on $57 a barrel, up from $36 at the end of October. It's been quite a ride. Recall that back in the spring, the market dislocations were the result of a one-two punch, COVID, and the Russian-Saudi price war. We had the bizarre episode of WTI going deeply negative as demand collapsed, and the price gradually pulled itself out of the hole. Now, Part of the rise can be attributed to the reflation trade on the back of positive vaccine news. Part of it is a gradual decline in shale production and inventories. And part of it is the agreement in January by OPEC Plus to hold back production in 2021. And meanwhile, Saudi Arabia has weighed in with its own cuts in an effort to stabilize oil above $50 a barrel. Now, we've learned that modeling out oil prices when all major producers are state-owned, except, of course, the U.S., is a tough exercise. Too many wild cards. But with demand figuring to rise as the global economy gets past COVID, The prospects for oil have not been this bright in quite some time. Maybe that's why we've seen so many energy firms hit the debt markets while energy stocks have had a nice run post-Pfizer Day, and why high-yield energy OAS has broken through 500 basis points, but still remains 155 basis points back of the high-yield index. All right, let's get to our third thing, ESG management, not ESG scores. Speaking of our webinar on midstream energy and project finance, I had the pleasure of speaking in a fireside chat, virtual of course, with Bill Cox, our global head of corporate financial and government ratings, about KBRA's approach to assessing ESG risks from a bondholder's perspective. Our session came on the heels of a session with Senator Kirsten Sinema, Democrat from Arizona, who is quite well versed in the issues related to ESG in which there is broad consensus that ESG will become even more prominent within the Biden administration. In a poll during the webinar, we asked attendees if they thought ESG risks will increase over the next four years, and a resounding 82% said yes. Back to my conversation with Bill. We had a chance to lay out how our approach to evaluating ESG is different from other rating agencies. Let me share those with you, or share some of those differences with you. So in a nutshell, we absolutely understand the role that certain ESG scores can and do play in helping investors preferentially allocate debt or equity investments. We just don't believe that ESG scores are an appropriate role for a rating agency credit analyst. So instead of collecting reams of irrelevant data and assigning a subjective score to a company's carbon footprint, We want to talk to management and know how physical climate risks, transition risks, regulatory risks, reputation risks, or stakeholder preferences are being identified, quantified, and managed. We call this framework ESG management. In ESG management, we focus on those factors that are material to credit and avoid distracting, burdensome, and superfluous data. Two, we do not lose sight of the fact that an increasingly ESG-sensitive world poses not only risks to an issuer, but also opportunities. Three, every issuer is viewed as a unique entity. We resist the temptation and intellectually deficient practice of tarring a sector with a broad brush. And four, we view the topic on a dynamic continuum of rather than a point-in-time judgment. Now, a lot of folks are running around, including some other rating agencies, wanting to be the standard for ESG scores, not KBRA. We want to remain a standard bearer for analyzing credit risk and for not allowing analysts to confuse the two and for working with management teams to increase investor understanding of how they intend to manage credit-relevant and impactful ESG risks and opportunities. So there you have it. Three things in credit, a deeper dive into the quality of the labor market, a look at the energy sector rising on the back of higher oil prices, and KBRA's differentiated approach to ESG analysis. Thanks for clicking in, enjoy the weekend,